everyone. Thanks for joining our webcast. Today, we're pleased to present Testing Lean Startup in Education. I'm Melissa Tinatigan, executive producer of the Lean Startup Conference, happening December 9 to 11. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Diane Tavener is the founder and CEO of Summit Public Schools, a leading charter management organization serving Silicon Valley's diverse communities. Summit currently operates six schools serving 1,600 students. While at NASA, Stephen Hodes built the U.S. government's first public website, connecting teachers and students with rich scientific resources and launching his career as an ed tech entrepreneur. He went on to create the web's most popular websites for high school and college students, the first online test preparation, and the first large-scale formative assessment platform for school districts. Sarah Melstein is the co-host of the Lean Startup Conference. Take it away, guys. Thank you, Melissa, and welcome, everyone. Um, I, this is Sarah, and I should note that we had some technical problems today. So this is going to be an audio-only webcast, no video of all of us, um, but it should work just fine. Um, so Stephen and Diane, thank you so much for joining us. We're really delighted to have you here today. Um, and Melissa gave a little bio on each of you, but I think it would be super useful to start with some more information about what you're each doing um, that's particularly um, exciting to you right now in bringing Lean Startup to your education systems. So Diane, let's start with you. If you can just give a little background, it doesn't have to be the, the whole novel, maybe just the, the intro. Great. Thanks, Sarah. Um, it's great to be here today. And um, I think the most exciting thing happening at Summit right now um, that has been enabled by our um, commitment to Lean Startup Principles is um, a transformation we've been making in our schools over the course of about two and a half years. And that is um, a fundamental rethinking and redesigning of what high school looks like in America. And specifically, um, changing from an environment where um, really adults are at the center of learning. Um, adults tell students when to arrive and when to leave and where to go and what to do and what to learn. And um, the transformation our schools are in the uh, are making is to an environment that's really directed and owned by students, a place where students um, are empowered and have agency over their own learning. Um, and as a result, uh, everything looks very different than what you can possibly imagine based on what was likely your schooling experience. And it has been um, our commitment to Lean Startup and um, all of the principles there that have allowed us to move to this um, really exciting place. That's great. And in fact, it, it feeds right into one of my questions, which we'll, we'll get to after we hear from Stephen. But I am going to want to talk about who your customers are. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, Stephen, how about you? So about a year ago, I joined uh, the New York City Department of Ed, which is the largest school district in the country uh, with 1.1 million kids and 135,000 employees. And my remit there is to help the department begin to function more like smart demand so that we can be a better customer and get better products and services from the marketplace. And at the same time, to help us think differently about the way we solve our own internal problems, create products, create processes. 
and so the lean startup emphasis on user-centered design and prototyping and iteration has been really crucial to, to both of those processes, both for the work we do with the schools that um, the Office of Innovation works with. We work with about 300 of our schools right now. Um, as well as uh, as we face externally with new partners and new providers um, to help them work with us to, to build stuff in the methodologies that they're familiar with, uh, which are typically with smaller, more innovative companies, are going to employ some aspect of lean methodology. Thank you, Stephen. That's, that's great. So one thing that strikes me is that because you sit in different places um, in within the education systems you're, you're working within, you both have different customer bases. But you also both have a lot of different constituents that you might consider customers. And I'm, I'm wondering how you figure out, you know, just when you're starting thinking about customer-centric work, how do you figure out who the, the customers are? And maybe, Dan, you could talk a little bit about how you came to the shift in focusing more on the students and then how you manage the other folks. It's such a great question, Sarah, and it's one that we, um, I, you know, continuously talk about and think about. I think... Um, you know, what would seem obvious to most folks is that um, our students are our customers, um, especially at the high school level. And there is no doubt that we really view them um, as our users and as our customers and take that very seriously. And one of the things we've committed to over the last three years is receiving constant and regular feedback from our students as users. Um, Certainly their parents are a big part of that equation um, and definitely could arguably be considered some of our um, customers and users. Um, but I think there's another um, element of public schooling that's really critical. An another customer is, in fact, um, the um, post-secondary education system, so colleges, universities, perhaps even more importantly, employers, um, and then quite frankly, our society, because... Um, Society is the is who makes the investment in public education, and so they certainly we have to be responsive to all of those stakeholders. Yeah, interesting. That is a really um, that is a really broad group, and I appreciate what you said about post secondary education uh, institutions being part of who you have to think about too. Uh, since part of your goal, I understand, is to make sure all of your high school students graduate college, which is correct, <laughs> unusual. Um, Stephen, can you talk a little bit about the customer equation for, for your situation? Sure. Um, you know, underline everything that Diane said and maybe add even uh, a couple of extra levels of complexity. So in New York City, um, it, we have mayoral control here, which means the Department of Education is a mayoral agency. And because of that and because of our $25 billion budget, the environment that we work in is really highly politicized. And so uh, we are constantly uh, becoming aware of the distinction between customers, users, and audiences in all senses of the word. And I think historically, most municipal agencies, not just departments of ed, but any, any in a large bureaucracy, typically don't even think of themselves as having customers. Um, certainly the, the processes and the products that they've produced typically don't act as if they're customer-focused and customer-facing. 
And there are so many different, let's call them constituencies, whether customers or users or audiences, with um, competing interests sometimes as well as overlapping interests. And each of those need to be engaged in different ways. They have different metrics for satisfaction. They have different criteria for which they're rewarded for performing whatever their function is. And so sometimes teasing out who actually is the customer um, is actually part of the work itself. Mm, yeah. Yeah, okay, so I, you mentioned metrics, and I want to come back to that in a little bit. L let's take a step back, though, as we're talking about customers, and you know, we're talking about seven layers of them and lots of different kinds, and it's politicized. Let's just talk about how we make bureaucracies and lean startup methods compatible. And that's a huge question, um, but I know it's something you've both thought about, and I'd like some just uh, high-level takes on that. Stephen, do you want to hit that one first? Yeah, I mean, um, our, we have started in, in the Office of Innovation and, and specifically in my work, um, we do tend to think about who the actual kind of users of the problem are, whichever is the problem that we're tackling um, at, a, at a particular moment. So we started off um, earlier this fall, we did the first software challenge that a district had ever run. And um, it was pretty run-of-the-mill as software challenges go, but it was certainly new in, in public schooling. And it was about middle school math. And so we considered the owners of that problem the middle school math teachers and students and curriculum coaches, which in and of itself was, was a pretty different approach, one that was really unfamiliar to the department. Typically, someone sitting in the central office would have been the one to decide what the problem was and they would be the person the solution would have to please even though they're not uh, by any means the user of that solution. Um, so we try to go as close to the ground as possible I think probably in the way that, that Diane thinks of her teachers and students as her customers. Um, that's the approach we try and take and sometimes it will be a student facing problem or a teacher facing problem. We just concluded something with the Office of Student Enrollment to help them develop applications for families to choose their high schools. And so again there the audience was uh, eighth and ninth grade students. Um, and uh, families and guidance counselors getting their perspective on the process. Um, so we try and go as, as, as close to the ground as we can. Yeah, interesting. Diane, do you want to yeah, talk about that? Yeah, I'd love to. I, I certainly um, echo what, what Stephen said, and I think it's been a, a process for us to sort of um, evolve into um, a lean organization from a more traditional bureaucracy, even as a charter school that was sort of designed in this, um, we, we designed ourselves and started. Um, so some of those early activities were indeed, um, you know, a 48-hour design experience that we engaged everyone in the organization in. Um, so they could just sort of unleash that creativity. Um, I think one of the issues in um, education in the public sector is not that there aren't great ideas and not that there aren't people throughout the organization who aren't focused on the customers and who aren't innovative, but it's they don't have a pathway to express those ideas and innovations. And so it's really about um, some le leadership opening up those opportunities. Um, we launched an innovation fund and really encouraged people to bring forth ideas and test them rapidly, um, prototype. And when, when they would bring those ideas forward, we gave space for that. Then that's when we took the opportunity to sort of um, teach the methodology to them. And 
um, embed that in the work that we were doing with them and coach them on it. Um, and then move to an organization that that, um, becomes very disciplined about just using those, um, processes consistently throughout the organization. It's been a three year journey for us. We're nowhere near where we ultimately want to be, but, um, certainly making significant process, um, progress every single day. I would, I would just underline again what Diane said. Um, there, there are so many people with so much energy and, and pent up ideas for solving problems. And a lot of it is actually helping them to unleash that and create a structure where they can get their ideas out and be rewarded with some joy in the process and hopefully seeing the ideas that are good be iterated and come to fruition. But there's tremendous pent-up demand for people who want to do good work. And in some ways, what we're doing is providing a structure and an outlet for that. We have an audience question here that I think is really relevant to this point, which is how do we serve customers when education has regulations in direct conflict with innovative methods of learning? Uh, well, I mean, from the, from the DOE perspective, uh, and we are all about the regulations, um, one of the things that was interesting to learn is that, um, you know, people always like to blame external forces for why something can't be done. It's the law, or it's the regulation, or it's the union contract. And you'd be surprised how often that's simply not the case that organizations, even large organizations, have a lot more freedom to do differently than they actually take advantage of. Um, and so while regulations are certainly an issue and contracts are an issue, um, you don't always have to go there in order to be able to make significant change and create significant new processes. Sometimes you do, and so part of the work of, of the Office of Innovation is to engage on the regulatory level to get freedom from regulations where that's important. But there's so much low-hanging fruit uh, in terms of doing differently that you often don't even need to go there. I, I couldn't agree more with what um, Stephen is saying. And uh, to illustrate the point, in California, I'm working with a group of um, schools that are really um, pushing the boundaries on the use of technology and doing some really innovative things. And we have spent the last year really zeroing in on what policy barriers exist um, that are preventing us from pushing our work to where we want it to be. And I'll be honest with you, the list is relatively short and not that overwhelming. Um, and most of us have been able to thus far um, it, it innovate and iterate in the direction we want to be going without um, too, mu too many actual barriers. Now, there are a hundreds of perceived barriers and a lot of these sort of myths about what you can't do. Um, and you have to be a little bit um, thoughtful in how you engage with legal counsel and some of the advice you get. But I, I really do think there is significantly more opportunity than um, we are led to believe exists. And I think a lot of times um, the same people who tell you that something can't be done, um, once you create something that they want to engage with, that they find exciting or compelling or rewarding, suddenly all of those barriers just somehow don't seem to be there anymore. And so a lot of it, I think, in large organizations is doing the marketing and, in a sense, the product design. And this is kind of what I meant about having different audiences. Those people in legal or procurement or IT compliance are as much your users or customers, in a sense, as the people in the classroom who are actually going to use the stuff you built because if you don't get those folks in the central office on board you're just going to have a much uh, you know tougher road to hoe. One of the questions that we hear all the time in every sector and in every kind of company is how do I sell the ideas internally which is what we're talking about here a little bit. How do we get people on board with 
lean startup methods with, with innovative approaches to different problems we have? How do we sell that up the chain? And I wonder if you could each give an example of how you've done that. You both just referred to working with legal, with procurement, things like that. How do you help, uh, Stephen, you just said, you know, you, you, you get them excited, you show them something they get excited about. Can you give an example of a time you've done that? Sure. I think, um, I guess the most relevant one for an internal audience um, is uh, the project I hinted at before with the Office of Student Enrollment. So um, New York has absolute high school choice uh, freedom. Every student must apply to high schools. There are no default choices. And because we have a lot of kids, that means 80,000 kids every year, 80,000 rising eighth graders apply to over 700 different high school programs. And so that choice policy is pretty good, and the outcomes are pretty good in the sense that about 70% of kids get one of their top three choices. Um, but the process that sits in between is pretty grueling for families. Um, and the, the department hasn't had tools in the past to help manage that. We have a 1,200-page printed directory that we distribute to 80,000 people. And that's basically the extent of the help we give them in making these choices. Um, so, um, and the Office of Student Enrollment is responsible for managing this process, and it's an extremely difficult process, and they have ways of dealing with it that they've developed over the years that make it possible for them to get the job done uh, at a pretty massive scale. And so coming to them and saying, hey, you know, there actually is a lot of data about tools that people engage with. The printed directory may not be the most helpful form to do it in. What if we were to take that data and create what ended up being the department's first open data API, put that data out there for everybody, and then just invite developers to come and build against it? Like, again, nothing startlingly new to, a, to, a, to this audience. Um, but again, new for this organization, the idea that people would be creating products out of their information that they themselves weren't controlling or responsible for was kind of a shocking idea. And it created a lot of anxiety. Um, but we were able to point to the success that we had had in previous software challenges to say, you know, why don't you give it a try? And like, if something goes horribly wrong, no big deal. You know, it's a prototype. Um, you're not endorsing this stuff or making a, you know, a big fuss about it um, until you see that you're comfortable with it and you like it. So that gave them enough confidence to take the next step, which was to engage in this two-month design process with a handful of developers and they saw that they had input and it made them more relaxed and they saw that the stuff that came out of it was good and they were even more relaxed and ultimately we had a big public demo night uh, which was really celebrated and now they have this experience that they did something different and the world didn't come to an end and it's going to make their lives easier and now they're ready to take the next step in terms of releasing more data and encouraging more uh, you know, open source development. Yeah. So I think it's about creating that first example and then ratcheting it from there. Yeah, and I like the language you use too about a prototype that's a little less scary than a whole new app or a new system, for example. Um, Diane, did you have any particular thing you wanted to jump in on with the examples you used to sell yeah. to legal, for example? Um, yeah, I, I think, again, we're, we're having very similar experiences, Stephen and I. Um, I. I think we've got a ton of examples, but really the key concept here is that to win people over, you have to identify a problem that is particularly challenging for them, um, or even a small problem for that matter, and then demonstrate that using these processes actually solves that and gets them to a place that's much more desirable. And, um, you know, I think one exciting example for us was, um, one early example, kind of easy win was, um, uh, our teachers really needed 
um, a way to differentiate and personalize instruction for students because, you know, when you've got 25 students and they're all in different places, how do you meet their individual needs? It's, it's humanly impossible. Um, and they sort of came to this idea of, you know, if we had a, a playlist for kids that was really intuitive for them where we could curate all these different resources where kids could actually choose how they learn best and um, where we could collaborate as teachers across different schools and across subject areas and, and courses in order to, to do this, it would be helpful. And um, so taking that wish, them um, seeing that it doesn't exist out there for them, and then partnering with, we partnered with a software company, shared this wish, and ultimately ended up co-developing, co-designing, building an MVP, testing it, involving our teachers all and students all along the way. And ultimately, this fall, launching it as a free product now that's available to every teacher in the world um, where they can collaborate and share and they're using with their students. Uh, just a really powerful experience that has everyone in our organization very bought into this type of um, continuous improvement. And, and it's really engaging. Dan, you just mentioned that there was an MVP as part of the process, and one of our audience questions is, can you give a few practical examples of MVPs in your context? And I'm wondering if you can dive in and just tell us a little more about what Definitely. the playlist MVP looked like. We, we are all about the MVP, and what I would say about that is um, when we got our organization to really embrace the idea of an MVP, it was so powerful because... There is this mindset in education, and I'm sure in other industries, that what you build has to be perfect um, coming out of the gate. And that's such a high bar and high standard, and it really does not allow for risk, um, and it really um, it sort of shuts off innovation, quite frankly, because the idea of testing something just doesn't exist. Now, this is ironic, because if we think about what we do every day, we really are um, testing and and innovating, but it's not in the language and the mindset of education as a general rule. And so um, the, the idea of the MVP was very powerful for our teachers to feel like they really could create something in short order and test it and try it and not have to commit to it for an entire school year if it's not working and or just to really rapidly improve it. I think what um, I mean, I have hundreds of examples on this, including this year, um, an entire school model. So over three years, we've really been building towards rethinking our whole entire school experience each day and really viewed what we launched this fall as an MVP of that. Now, with multiple, multiple elements, um, but the whole thing is really viewed as, you know, what can we launch as a minimally viable product this fall and then rapidly iterate on. Um, which brings us to another really key point is what data are you using in order to drive your iteration and what are your value hypotheses and all of that. But um, the MVP has been a really powerful um, mind shift for everyone. We'll come back to the data thing in just a minute that is critical. Can you describe for us one MVP that you were using and the hypothesis you were trying to test with it so people just get a real kind of visual sense for, for what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. Oh, sorry. That's Stephen. Yes, go. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the one thing I would say to, uh, to, to qualify is that for us, a lot of times, the products are actually processes um, as, as much as they are software, let's say, or, or, or some concrete good. And I have a really kind of originalist notion of what an MVP is, which is it's the, the smallest possible piece of work that lets you validate a hypothesis. 
Um, it doesn't necessarily refer to like a minimum feature set or even a feature set at all. It's something that lets you test a, a hypothesis. And so the um, what I just described, this thing we did with the Office of Student Enrollment, um, was actually our MVP for working with a high-level central department of ed office as a stakeholder and as a collaborator. It was the first time that we had done that where we weren't classroom facing or student facing. And, you know, um, like Diane said, you sort of have to work differently then because you're, you're trying to find out what their problems are that you're trying to solve. And they were partners with us on this. Um, so that was, that was our MVP for that. And it was successful enough both in terms of the product that came out of it and in terms of their satisfaction with the process and in this heavily politicized environment, the fact that there were only good newspaper headlines, no bad newspaper headlines, that um, it uh, induced the chancellor, which is what we call our superintendent, to actually create something called the Chancellor's Challenge, where he put out an invitation to the nine divisions of the Department of Ed, inviting each of them to submit a very brief proposal for a problem or process that they wanted to improve or create or that they were just <laughs> stuck on. And we would work with one one of those proposals and take them through this kind of user-centered uh, lean methodology to work on that. Um, so before we went department-wide, in a sense, our MVP was working with one particular office so we would understand the dynamic and then we could frame the work to a much broader audience with much higher level political support. Right. Interesting. Um, Dan, I did want to give you a chance to give a very specific example of a hypothesis you were testing in the MVP you used. In, in describing it. Yeah, certainly. And I agree with Stephen. What's interesting about education is um, far more um, sort of human processes that we're building as opposed to actual um, software or, or products. There's definitely an element to that. But um, so much of what we do is about human contact and a human process that it does um, add a whole new twist to, to uh, Lean Startup and the methodology, I think. Um, I think... Um, one of the most interesting examples that um, has come up for us over the couple of years of an MVP was um, we were testing over a period of time the efficacy of our teachers um, holding seminars for students, and this was in mass, and um, how well students were um, liking those seminars, engaging in those seminars, and then how they directly related to um, student outcomes on assessments. And so specifically, the hypothesis was, you know, if students um, engage in a seminar led by a teacher around a particular topic, they will have um, a, a greater likelihood of um, mastering a micro standard or a concept and then showing that mastery on an assessment. Um, and so over a series of about six weeks, we were testing this and um, literally each week the feedback was coming back, um, low satisfaction of the seminars by our students. So our focus group data was showing they didn't, you know, they didn't find them relevant, useful, timely. Um, students had choice in these seminars, so their participation was going down. And there was literally no correlation between them um, demonstrating mastery of the concept and attending the seminar. Um, and so students were finding other ways that were more effective for them to learn. And so what we ultimately did was um, test, choose to test a hypothesis that said, based on what we were seeing, we believe that if we provide students access to a teacher a, uh, as a tutor um, on demand and as needed when they're learning a concept, 
that they will be more successful in learning that concept more efficiently and more effectively. So quicker and, um, and with less, um, output or human resource invested in it. And, um, our theory was to put a tutoring bar in the learning space. And instead of having our teachers plan these seminars and put all these hours into it to have them just be available to the students. And sure enough, um, that MVP, which was very rough, it was literally like a handwritten signed tutoring bar and the teacher at a, a table in the middle of the room, um, proved to be, um, show some promising results in that first week. And as we kept iterating on it, um, became significantly more effective. And today, um, every single one of our schools throughout them, you will find this tutoring bar um, as part of um, a really powerful use of human resources. And um, yeah, so I think that's one really good example. So one of the things that you mentioned in that is that the first thing you did was run a seminar that proved not only unpopular, but ineffective. And one of the challenges, of course, with Lean Startup is when you're invalidating a lot of ideas, your coworkers, um, you and your coworkers can get pretty discouraged. And I wonder, how do you keep up for the teacher engagement in the process when it turns out that some of the teaching isn't effective? Yeah, and in that particular example, you know, this is this is at the core of teaching. So we were testing something that's been that is what teachers do every single day, and um, it took several weeks and lots of data to even accept and believe that this might not be yielding the results we would want. But um, the key driver, I think, in education and perhaps an advantage we have is, um, you know, virtually every teacher I know wakes up every morning and really does want to do what's best for kids. They want kids to learn. They want to be effective in their ability to teach them and guide them and help them progress. And they are really driven by um, their mission to and their their calling, if you will. And so um, I think that the key to keeping them motivated and engaged is to show them a pathway that where they really can continuously get better and if something's not working, there is a pathway to doing something that does work. And so um, that has really been our strategy for keeping them engaged and certainly proving to be effective. Diane, one of the things that made me smile when you were describing your tutoring bar um, was uh, we had a really, really similar experience. We, we actually put these kinds of uh, MVP challenges out to the schools that we work with. We ask them to identify a problem that's you know, particular to their community. No other school may have it. And then identify, and then we take them through this structured process to come up with solutions. And um, this was a school that was concerned that the way it was providing uh, services to its IEP kids, its special ed kids, mm-hmm. was both in inefficient and and joyless for the kids Mm -hmm. and for the teachers. And the solution they actually came up with was, they called it the genius bar, um, but it is exactly your tutoring bar, (laughs) where they gave kids the autonomy to, each kid got a certain budget of a number of appointments that they could make in the month uh, for the one-on-one work. And they were responsible for booking and scheduling their appointments, um, you know, as they needed to. Um, and it, it turned out to, they enabled them to work much more closely with their teachers. The teachers found it more rewarding. The kids found it much more respectful and, and useful. And so it's interesting to me that the same structure that you guys came up with and our schools came up with, there are probably a lot of these organic solutions that would arise from practitioners if they were given the space in which to uh, voice them and then, and then test them out. 
I completely agree. It's a fantastic example because the other piece that um, occurs in your example is that those students are engaging in really beneficial life skills or what we would call habits of success around scheduling an appointment and making decisions and thinking about how to allocate their resources. And, um, you know, yes, we did not do the genius bar. We, we, we did the uh, twist on the, on the title, but certainly the same concept. And, um, I, I think that's really, um, it's fascinating and goes back to the point of just unleashing, giving a, a forum and an environment and a culture that really unleashes all of that creativity and um, ingenuity that exists in our school right now. So I'm interested, Diane, when you, you know you talk about gathering the data and stuff, what kind of metrics do you guys look at in this example, for example? Yeah, it's a good question. So in this particular example, we looked at, and we always look at, um, we're constantly looking at how students are um, performing against um, a, 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 on a competency-based level against standards. So what do they know and what can they do and how are they showing that? We have a automated assessment system, an on-demand assessment system. So when students believe they know something, they can just show that they know it, demand the assessment, show that they know it. So we're tracking that. So sort of more of a conventional measure. Um, but like I mentioned, we have really committed um, significant resource to running focus groups with our students on a weekly basis to regularly surveying them and to gathering um, regular um, feedback from them about their experience, about iterations in the model, about things we're testing um, we also do some um, A-B testing when appropriate. And um, and then we're looking at um, some other data in those habits of success. So, for example, our students do all um, set goals, develop plans for achieving them, reflect on them. And so we'll look at that data as well. So those are kind of the big areas on that one. Dan, when you say you do A-B testing and we're talking about students it sounds yeah. like we might be into a little bit of a hairy area. Can you talk about that it a little bit? Is, we're thoughtful about that, and it's um, relatively limited. But, um, you know, one of the ways we can do that is um, we have multiple schools that we're working with, and we have very similar populations. And so we can introduce a change in one and not in the other or two different um, items in one and, and the other and then look at the difference Um you know, one of the interesting things that happens when you're implementing something across multiple schools in a human process is that you will get variability in your um, implementation. And so while certainly it's not pure A-B testing, we, we definitely can then see the outcomes and results of those variable implementations and learn a great deal from that as well. Yeah. So it, when we were all talking a little bit before we started, we were looking at the, the question of vanity metrics. And, you know, Diane, you were saying, how do we go beyond them? And you're just starting to talk about that here a little. But, Stephen, you jumped in and said they're actually incredibly important to you and they can help you validate ideas. Can you talk about how you use vanity metrics to then move to the next step? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, uh, I guess it, it kind of comes down to whose vanity you're talking about as to whether these things can be misleading. Um, so, you know, kind of given the, um, the very public nature of public schooling, and again, the tremendous political pressure, um, and, um, you know, this, this fear of failure uh, that Diane mentioned, which is really ubiquitous and goes, the higher up in the organization you go, the worse it gets. 
um, in order to get collaborators to come along with you, you need to make them you need to make them feel good by things that matter to them. Not only do you need to identify problems that are important to them, um, but they're looking for certain indicators of success that may not overlap with your indicators of success. And so depending on the, the situation and what it is you're trying to accomplish, for example, a certain number of newspaper headlines that speak positively about the work can be far more important, for better or for worse, can be far more important in getting you the buy-in to take it to the next step than some increase in student achievement on a formative assessment. Because those particular people who your audience is, who you're trying to impress at the central level, their concerns are not immediately about student achievement at that moment. It's about what does this mean for me and my career and uh, you know, the potential downside and how is my boss going to feel about it. Um, so. I, when I think of vanity metrics, um, I, I think of things, I, they're bad because they can be deceiving, right, when you apply them to yourself. Um, but I think things that demonstrate popularity, again, in a politicized content, uh, context are really important. Um, and so we do rely on them. When we do software challenges, for example, participation in those challenges is a really important metric. In fact, it's one of the things we optimize for. And I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say that often we'll optimize more for participation than the quality of the software that comes out the other end. Because at that stage in our MVP, what we're trying to demonstrate is not that a software challenge produces the silver bullet that's going to solve all our middle school math problems, but that if we have an open, embracing, compelling process that new partners will want to come and participate with us. So on the one hand, those are vanity metrics because they don't actually affect student outcomes. But on the other hand, it was exactly the kind of thing that we were trying to prove at that moment so we could get to the next stage. Yeah, Stephen, I think this is really fascinating because when we had that very quick exchange earlier, I was thinking about different vanity metrics. And um, I actually am really on board with the use of the metrics you're talking about. And I think that it, they speak very much to the, the early stages of education engaging in this type of work and um, what we need to do to build momentum and um, really kind of to ready ourselves um, to build a culture and a level of readiness to engage in um, even deeper, more honest work um, that we're, I think we're both driving toward. And so I, I think it's um, on the right pathway. Some of the vanity metrics that I was um, thinking about that I think are a little bit more dangerous um, in education are around, um, you know, our sort of national obsession with um, comparing our school's performance, one school to another on a sort of high level, holistic single number that really is a, about test scores in a very limited set of um, exams and don't really speak to students' real readiness for college and or career. Um, and I think the danger in those types of metrics that are highly publicized and that everyone looks at is a whole group of schools in the country look at them and say, oh, well, I'm better than everyone else. And so we must be fine and great. Um, and it, what they're not then looking at is what's really going on with students and um, the fact that schools really aren't doing what they need to be doing today and that there's a whole set of students that are being underserved and even the students at the higher levels um, of achievement and performance are being outpaced by their peers around the world. And so I think it hides and masks a lot of 
um, what we should be tackling um, in education and where we should be thinking about innovating. And so um, I think those are the more dangerous types of, of metrics. You know, oh, you know, five of my kids were National Merit Scholars or you know, two of them got into Ivy Leagues and we can get excited and caught up in those vanity metrics and ignore all the reality of the, the thousands and, you know, hundreds of thousands of students who are um, not in a position where they're really reaping the benefits of their education. I, I think that's that's totally true. And it, it kind of comes back to one of the central issues that, you know, we as educators all have to deal with, which is sort of who sets our priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you hear about competitiveness, international competitiveness all the time. And sometimes that seems uh, just a really poor proxy for the kinds of capabilities you want to build in your kids and in your teachers, and yet increasingly accountability frameworks at the district or state or national level aim at those things. And that's when you have a good public policy discussion about what should we all be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have just a couple minutes to go here, and I wanted to take a question from the audience that kind of ties together a bunch of these ideas and some of the things we've been talking about, which is how do you balance the idea of experimentation and risk? Um, with top-down accountability systems, especially for teachers. Because you know, they, the vanity metrics may feel good and they may be getting graded on those or some other things that might not really get to the heart of experimentation. How they, when I said they graded, I mean their, their own work may be assessed. How do you guys approach that that problem? I think it's a great question, Sarah. And I think that... Um, it's, it's a somewhat complex answer, but I think some elements of it are, number one, um, I think as an organization, we have made a commitment to um, a very clear mission. So what are we trying to achieve um, for our students and with our students? Um, and then putting that mission at the heart and center of every single decision we make. Um, recognizing we live in a larger environment and we are held accountable as adults and professionals to certain numbers. And so recognizing we need to, to sort of hit those marks, but not focusing our energy and work um, directly in our innovation directly on that, but on um, the elements of, of success as defined by our mission. And so um, a very sort of honest look at what does it mean for students to really be ready for college and career? Because those existing metrics that we're measured on uh, don't actually correlate with those outcomes. And so defining that and then um, figuring out, being really honest about where we are and collecting data to, to really show where we are with our students um, that go beyond the vanity metrics, because we have tons of vanity metrics. You know, we're, you know, if you look at the vanity, we're incredible as an organization. So being really honest about that and looking at that and then um, just, you know, the discipline to work towards innovating and solving those problems that exist on a daily basis. And um, that's really um, it takes that level of commitment as an organization, I think, in order to move beyond um, and and uh, do this work. I I, I think that one of the things that makes this work so compelling is that you're not actually free to pick and choose completely what standards you're going to hold yourself to because you're in this public context with taxpayer money and other people's children uh, where people above your pay grade have made certain decisions about how they're going to measure you. Um, And again, that's a big political conversation about what the best things are. 
Um, but it's exciting to work in an environment where you have those constraints and you have multiple audiences to serve. And you don't want to end up being one of those people who say, oh, I can't do this because the accountability framework won't let me. It's very, very seldom true. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that Diane has also found that the interesting challenge is to hit those metrics that the system holds you accountable for, even if you don't think they're very good or very relevant. Yeah. Um, but you can't reject them. You don't have the freedom to pivot away from your state's accountability framework while at the same time doing the work that you believe and you know is important for your organization and for your kids. That's, that's what's exciting about this. Absolutely. Well, on that note, that is a perfect wrap-up here. I appreciate both of your time so much, and I will say this is really just the tip of the iceberg. The good news is that both Stephen and Diane will be joining us at the Lean Startup Conference December 9th to 11th in San Francisco. Um, you can join us there to continue this conversation and learn more. Thank you both so much. This has really been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, both of you. Have a great day. Bye, Diane. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference held on December 9 to 11 in San Francisco.